Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. In the midst of struggle and persecution, the church at Smyrna looked outwardly as though they were poor, but from Jesus' perspective, they were in fact rich. How so? Well, Pastor Phil will explain as he turns our attention to Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. Let's join him now for today's study. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Well, then he gets into the commendation in verse 9. He says, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Twice in this verse, Jesus says to this suffering, persecuted church that had lost so many of its loved ones, I know. I know. There are times in ministry where I have had to try to minister to someone who has just lost a loved one. Uh, In fact, there was a time in our church several years ago where in the course of a year or a year and a half, there were about five different women who lost husbands. And as each woman lost a husband, you know, I would try to go to them and I would try to minister to them. And, I, you know, you always feel so inadequate. And I would try my best to comfort them. And usually I would just try to, again, just be with them, just be quiet, just kind of let them know that I was there, you know. And, and I felt very awkward in trying to just say anything that would comfort them. Think They already knew Scripture. They already knew the Lord. And so it's awkward. It's hard. But I saw an interesting thing take place. Whenever a new woman would lose her husband and another lady who had lost a husband months earlier, when she would enter into the room and their eyes wouldn't meet, they would run to each other, throw their arms around each other, and the one would just sob in the other woman's arms. And you know what that woman would say to, the, to this lady who just lost her husband? I know. I know. That's all she had to say. There's something very comforting in being with somebody who knows what you're going through. And, and here it's as if Jesus has his arms around this little church. And is just saying to them, I know. I know what you're going through. I too was persecuted. I too have tasted of death. I died. But I'm alive again. And even as they are going to be alive again someday. But for right now, I know it's hard. And I believe Jesus really does this with all of us who are his people. He knows what we're going through. He is not blind to our suffering or our pain. He knows everything that's happening in our lives. And he longs for us to draw close to him so that he can kind of put his arms around us. And sometimes he'll use a fellow believer to do that. But I believe in those quiet times when it's just you and the Lord. He wants to wrap his arms around you. He wants to comfort you. He wants you to know that he knows what you're going through. Jesus tasted everything that we go through. He drank the cup of the sufferings that any one of us could experience, and he drank it all. He knows exactly 
what it feels like to suffer. He knows what it feels like to die. He knows what it feels like to be separated from somebody that you love. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He knows it all. And he wants to comfort us if we'll just draw close to him. It's interesting. I just got back from the pastor's conference uh, last week. It was a great conference, but it was also a difficult conference. I've never been to a pastor's conference quite like this one. Every day, the speakers were being handed notes of some other tragedy that had befallen somebody in ministry, a pastor, his wife, an associate pastor. It was incredible. We were stopping throughout the day to pray for people in ministry. This pastor just found out that he has cancer. Or this pastor's wife has just found out she has cancer. While we were up there, two pastors, their sons, who were cousins, were on motorcycles. And they had an accident. They both, you know, lost it and were thrown off the bikes. Both suffered broken bones. Thank God God brought them through it. One pastor was working under his assistant pastor who wasn't there, but was working under his car. And the jack gave out and the car fell on him and crushed him. He had to go to the hospital with internal injuries. Goofy things. One pastor's mother and a strong windstorm opened up the screen or the thing ripped off, hit her in the head. She had concussion, had to go to the hospital. I mean, it was like, Lord, what else is going to happen here? One thing after another. You know, it's not easy being a child of God. The devil is out to get you and the devil never takes a vacation, does he? He is always out to get us. Now, I could worry about that if I didn't know that in me, Jesus Christ lived who is much stronger than the devil. I mean, in us, he is greater in us than he that is in the world, right? So I choose not to focus on the devil. But I'm aware that he's looking to get me and my family, and, and you too. And that's why I keep praying, God, just protect us. Watch over us. Give us grace, Lord. Put your angels around us. I'm always praying for my wife and my kids and for you guys, that God would protect us, watch over us. But we're not immune from these things. We're not immune. But in all of it, Jesus says, I know what you're going through. I know what you're doing for me. I know your works. He said, I know your tribulation. Verse 9, the word for tribulation there isn't the great tribulation which we'll be studying in a few weeks, but it's the tribulation that all Christians suffer for their faith, especially those who are living in a very hostile environment. I mean, it's getting worse and worse in America for Christians, but it's nothing like it is in China or Africa or Indonesia or India. When our brothers in India travel to a new city to spread the gospel, they have been instructed to stop outside the city limits and dig a a grave for themselves to remind them they probably won't live through sharing the gospel in this city because it's a Hindu stronghold or a Muslim stronghold. We know that Jesus told us that these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Paul said all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul said to the churches of Galatia to encourage them, he said, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of heaven. We've been immune for a long time in this country from suffering. We think it's strange when we suffer because we're so used to not suffering. Peter says, look, don't think it's strange when fiery trials come upon you. This is just common for the people of God. 
living in a hostile world. Jesus said, because you belong to me now, don't expect the world to love you anymore. The world is your enemy. Not that you've declared war on it. It's declared war on you because the God of this world is in control of the world and he's against you and me. So Jesus said, look, you know, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. A A servant is not greater than his master. Get ready. They're going to hate you without a cause. I'll tell you one thing we can take from these seven letters is that each church had a wrong view of themselves, just like many Christians do. Uh, Several of these churches actually thought they were doing a lot better than they really were. Others thought they were doing a lot worse than they really were. The thing about it is Jesus knew exactly what was going on in every church and in every individual Christian's heart. There are a lot of Christians who think they're a lot better than they really are with the Lord. I run into them all the time. There's a lot of carnality. There's not a lot of desire for spiritual things. But to talk to them, they think that they're just really, you know, the Lord and them are just really tight. I mean, things are great. And then there's other Christians who think that they're big failures. And I'm convinced many of them got us saying, no, I see what's going on. I see your heart. Like the church of Smyrna. We're not always the best judge of what's really going on, are we? That's why Paul the Apostle said to the, to the Corinthians, he said in chapter 4, he said, look, it's no big deal that you guys judge me. Because they were judging Paul. I mean, some Judaizers had come in and were telling the church there, Paul's not even an apostle. He wasn't one of the twelve. What are you listening to him for? And so Paul said, look, it's no big deal that you judge me. I don't even judge myself. I'm so biased on my own behalf. I just commit it all to the Lord. And Paul says, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. So Paul is saying, look, we don't even know what's going on in our own hearts. Sometimes we're blind to our own motives and why we do the things we do for the Lord. I mean, two people are doing for the Lord. They're serving the Lord. One is doing it for recognition from men, uh, to gain a place of, of prominence in the church. Another is doing it just out of a simple and sincere love for Jesus Christ. But sometimes we don't know what, why we're doing the things we do. And Paul says, look, when Jesus comes, he's going to reveal everything. He's going to reveal what was in our hearts and that motivated us to do the things we did for him. When that happens, he'll reward each one of us according to the motives of our hearts. Until that time, stop judging each other. And don't even judge yourself. Just love the Lord, serve Him, because we have a way of beating up ourselves, don't we? We have a way of beating up ourselves and thinking, I'm a lousy Christian, you know, and I should be stronger by this time. And, 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 you know, down on ourselves, down on ourselves. and, And we allow the devil to beat us down so much that we feel so worthless. It's like, why even try anymore? And we need to just keep our eyes on the Lord. I think I, I, I gain a lot of comfort knowing that here is a church that thought they were a failure. But Jesus said, no, in the eyes of God, you're a great success. They thought that they were poor. But Jesus said, in the eyes of God, you are very rich. Rich in faith and in heavenly rewards. In contrast to the church of Laodicea, that was a very wealthy church. And were very, was very proud about the size of their church and all that was going on and the wealth that they had. And Jesus said, you think you're rich, but you're really, what? Miserable and blind and poor and wretched and naked. I, I challenge you to, to gain true riches, Jesus said. You're putting all your faith and trust in gold and silver and so on. 
So it's not an indication of how successful a church is in the eyes of God because how big they are, how affluent they are, how nice a building they have, how many amenities they can provide for people. That means nothing to God. What God is looking at is the heart. How much do you love me? You know, somebody said that over 90 cents of every dollar donated to the church goes into the building. And in fact, many Christians donate to their church because they expect it to go back into the building to buy more amenities, to get the Starbucks franchise maybe, to, to have the nicest food court or bookstore or children's ministry. See, that's not giving, folks. That's investing. And it's not investing in the kingdom. It's investing in my comfort, really. So God sees this. Sometimes the biggest churches are not always the most spiritual churches. And the same is true with individual Christians. Sometimes we have a tendency to look at Christians who are being blessed and blessed and blessed, and we think God loves them more. And we're going through suffering and persecution, and we're dealing with all kinds of problems, and we're thinking God has abandoned us. Just the opposite might be true. God might be preparing you for a great work, and that's why he's putting you through trials. Whereas they, they're just so carnal that God can't even try to grow them. He just blesses them. Because he loves them, but he can't really work in them because, let's face it, I mean, sometimes, as soon as God starts to take a few things away and bring a little, a little adversity into a Christian's life, if they're carnal, oh man, they go berserk. They start railing against God. God, why are you doing this, you know? And, and it's just sad to see them. It's like a little child throwing a temper tantrum on the ground when you take a toy away. How can God do much with a person like that? Now, Jesus said, I know your poverty, but you are rich. The word poverty there in the Greek is a word that means abject poverty. Total destitute, they're totally destitute. Why was that? Well, back then, every guild or trade had its own patron god or goddess in the Greek pantheon that they worshipped. And they would begin every workday with some kind of pledge of allegiance, all the workers in that trade or guild. Uh, would gather and they would uh, they would um, pledge allegiance to that particular deity to start their work day. Well, of course, Christians weren't going to do that. They weren't going to pledge allegiance to some pagan deity. But because they weren't going to do that, they couldn't be a member of the guild or the trade, which meant they couldn't work, which is why they were so impoverished. Folks, they were poor because they were rich in faith. They wouldn't compromise. Today, so a lot of Christians that have no problem compromising for the sake of making a buck. They have no problem lying about the product, misrepresenting as a salesman what this product is and what it will do. Or other things. If it means I'll make more money to provide for my family, they justify it. Here was a church that was saying, no, we're not going to compromise. We're going to trust God. And if we can't work because they won't let us work because we won't pledge allegiance to some pagan deity, we'll just trust God that he's going to take care of us. Well, yeah, they were poor, but God was there. And it was because of their faith that they were poor, not because of a lack of faith. And I want to point that out to you. I want you to notice that even though they were a poor church, Jesus didn't rebuke them for their poverty. And even though they were a suffering church, Jesus didn't condemn them for suffering like a lot of modern-day televangelists and pastors would have no doubt done had they been writing this letter. Jesus doesn't say here, I know your poverty, and you shouldn't have it. I know your suffering. Shame on you. Where's your faith? Isn't it interesting how much theology people get today 
from slick celebrity preachers instead of our Savior. I mean, think about that. If more people would turn off the TV and open up the Word, they'd be a lot better off with regard to their knowledge of the Word and their ability to understand what really is going on. I mean, Jesus Christ never rebuked this church for their poverty. He didn't condemn them for suffering. He said, you're very rich. He also went on to say in verse 9, And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What an expression there. You have to understand that in the early years of the church, much of the persecution that it faced was from Jews who saw Christianity as a cult because Christians claimed that Christianity was the fulfillment of Judaism. And that was true. They, they understood. They didn't believe it, but the Christians knew that was true. We speak of Judeo-Christianity, right? We can't separate the two. Judaism, Judaism is the root. Christianity is the fruit. We are children of Abraham, right? Because we believe. We're tied together. But the law given through, you know, given to Moses and, and the Jewish nation, that wasn't to make them righteous. That was to point them to Christ, the Messiah, who alone could bring them righteousness. And we're the fruit of that, right? The gospel of grace. So yes, Judeo-Christianity. It started with Judaism, but it found its fulfillment in Christianity. Well, the Jews didn't like that, unbelieving Jews. They didn't like that we believed, or the Christians back then believed, that Christianity was the fulfillment of Judaism. They thought that Christianity was a cult. And they saw it as their mission to try to stamp out or wipe out this cult. And by the way, Saul of Tarsus at one time was one of these antagonists, one of these persecutors who felt the very same way about Christianity. They were a cult, and it was his mission as a faithful Jew to exterminate these Christians and to wipe out this cult until he had a little run-in with the founder uh, on the road to Damascus who... (laughs) turned him around, you might say. But unbelieving, there was a lot of misconceptions that the Jews had concerning Christians. Some of it was willful ignorance, and some of it was just they didn't take the time to, you know, they judged it without really taking the time to get into it more to find out what Christians really believed. As a result, there was a lot of ignorance. Unbelieving Jews commonly accused Christians of cannibalism because they had a misunderstanding of what the Lord's Supper was all about. When Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, of course, we understand that to be symbolic. But unbelieving Jews said, oh, they're cannibals. They're eating their founder's body and blood. Both unbelieving Jews and pagans in those days accused Christians of being immoral because Paul said, greet each other with a holy kiss on the cheek. Holy kiss. And they saw that as immorality. Of course, they were looking for things, right? I mean, how could you call a peck on the cheek you know, immoral. But they were just looking for anything. Jews and pagans also accused Christians of breaking up homes because when one person got saved in the marriage and the other person did not, it led to a lot of conflict and sometimes divorce. So Christianity was blamed as being divisive and breaking up families and so on. Christians were also accused of being atheists. Why? I mean, didn't they believe in God? Yeah, they only believed in one God, though. You see, the Romans were very polytheistic. As I, in the Greeks, they had believed in a pantheon of gods. They were very polytheistic. So for the Christians to say, no, there's only one God, they were called atheists by the Romans and the Greeks. So they were accused of being atheists because they wouldn't worship the whole pantheon of pagan deities. And they were also accused of 
political disloyalty and rebellion because Christians refused to offer the required sacrifices to the Roman emperor. You see, once a year, every Roman citizen was required by law to stand before a bust of Caesar. And with a pinch of incense placed in the sacrificial fire, they were to say, Kaiser Kurias, which means Caesar is Lord. Now, of course, if you're a Roman citizen, it didn't matter to you because you worship many gods. Didn't matter if you added Caesar to the list and said, well, Caesar was the supreme deity above, above them all. Who cares? But for the Christians, they cared. The Christians would not call anybody Lord but Jesus. And because they would not call Caesar Lord, they were persecuted, and of course, they were killed. Now, in, in Smyrna, there was a pretty good-sized Jewish population. And some of them were very wealthy and influential Jews. And so what happened was they went ahead and reported all of these false allegations to the Roman government. You know, Christians are divisive, they're, they're rebels, they're, they're political dissidents, uh, they're homewreckers, they're cannibals, you know, all the whole list. They went through them. And what happened was the Jews there in, uh, in Smyrna really whipped up the Roman government to go ahead. You know, Smyrna, I didn't mention this, was fiercely loyal to Rome. They were fiercely loyal. I mean, in one battle where Roman soldiers were, it was wintertime, and uh, the soldiers, I guess, um, the clothes had worn out, and they were now exposed to uh, the severe weather. Uh, It says the people of Smyrna went there, took their own cloaks off, and gave them to the Roman soldiers to to help protect them. And Rome was so taken by these people and and their loyalty to the Roman Empire that they bestowed upon them special blessings and favor. So when these Jews began to talk against the the Christian population there, Rome was only too happy to accommodate them and do whatever they had to do to begin to wipe these dissidents, rebels, whatever you want to call them, atheists out. But Jesus called these Jewish haters of the gospel, he called them a synagogue of Satan. In other words, they saw themselves as a synagogue of God. They saw that they were doing the work of God in destroying Christianity. But in reality, they were a a synagogue of Satan. They were only doing the devil's work. Didn't Jesus say in John 8 to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil? It's amazing how religious people can think they are so right with God and at the same time be so wrong. In fact, Jesus said in John 16, he said to his disciples, there is coming a time when those who kill you will think they're doing God's service. They're doing the work of God. Do you realize that far more Christians, many more Christians, have been killed by people who claim to represent God than by atheists and communists? Do you realize that? Starting with the Jews, who claimed to represent God and thought that they were doing God's service in wiping out this cult called Christianity, then followed by the Roman Catholic Church that began to persecute the true Christians, the faithful remnant of God, again, trying to stamp them out because they refused to pledge allegiance to Rome as Lord. And what do we have today? What religious group who claims to be serving God is now actively involved in killing Christians around the world? Islam. There has always been those people who believed they were doing God's service by wiping out Christians, by persecuting the church. Now, the persecution of the church of Smyrna 
really reached its climax about 50 years after this letter, after this letter, with the execution of a very elderly, very godly bishop of Smyrna called Polycarp. Polycarp was about 100 years old when he was executed. And the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, played a major role in his execution. And history records for us what happened. And I pulled this uh, from a document that was written back at that time where eyewitnesses actually recorded what had happened. I'm going to give you, just give you parts of it. It's pretty lengthy. But it records how that Polycarp, after he was arrested and brought into the stadium of, in Smyrna, it says this, and I'm quoting, And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Respect to thy old age. You're an old man. What do you, I don't want to kill you. Renounce Christ. And other similar things according to their custom, such as swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say away with the atheist. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. Set free.